This is a familiar psalm. And that has its own inherent danger, I suppose. I think as a kid, I, I will say this. When I first learned it, quite honestly, I wasn't too sure what it all meant because at the end of it, I was always wondering why these three ladies were always following me, surely goodness and mercy. And I thought, this is really, this is really not good. As I came to understand, they weren't three ladies. Goodness and mercy would follow me. If I were to nominate one word that I think describes the condition of a lot of folks I meet today, I think that word would be weary. For a variety of reasons, they may have small kids constantly on the run. They may have even smaller kids, and so they don't get any sleep. They're putting in extra hours at work and extra days on the weekend, or they simply aren't sleeping well at night. They go to bed late, or they wake up earlier than they want, or their schedule is just so crazy, it's just tiring people out. Now, that's kind of at the physical level, but I think there's one that even goes deeper, kind of a soul fatigue, worry and anxiety over specific issues or life in general, long simmering conflict either with groups or individuals. Sometimes the constant news cycle and the glut of information just wears us down. Sometimes living a schedule that has no margin, it's just one thing after another. We have all this hurry and this physical tiredness, and maybe we feel as if the whole world is on our shoulders, and if you don't get it done, it will not get done, and so you take responsibility for it and everything else. Or maybe there's the notion that you've equated rest with laziness, and to take a break makes you feel as if you're being non-productive and not accomplishing anything, and you don't want to feel as if you're lazy. You don't want to feel as if maybe you're not pulling your weight. And that kind of burden wears us down. I mentioned something a couple weeks ago, and I still believe it. Exhaustion and burnout is not a spiritual virtue. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. And somehow we've made it that way. But here's the thing. We weren't designed to live this way. John Ortberg, one of my favorite writers, simply puts it this way. The soul craves rest. The soul craves rest. But I and maybe others seem determined to deny our souls the very thing that it craves. Now, in his book, Soul Keeping, John Oldberg does offer some indicators that our soul fatigue, as he calls it, has kicked in. For example, things seem to bother you more than they should. Is that where you are right now? Things just really grate on you more than they should. He offers an example. For example, your spouse's gum-chewing suddenly reveals to you a massive character flaw in them. I wouldn't recommend naming that. I would just pay attention to it and just say, maybe I'm fatigued. It's hard to make up your mind even about a simple decision. Impulses to eat or drink or spend or crave are harder to resist than they otherwise would be. Sometimes we're more likely to favor short-term gains in ways that leave very high long-term costs. And sometimes you just have less courage and energy to lean into the hard places and situations of life. So, Maybe these things are indicators to you. Maybe the red light on your dashboard is blinking. Maybe you have others. Maybe you know yourself well enough to know when I see that light on my soul flashing, I know that I'm tired. There's an indicator. The problem again is, let's say that light is the fuel light. Sometimes we tend to run on fumes. Sometimes we just tend to keep going and going and going. Again, John Ortberg, 
quote, the soul is not well when we rush so much. If it does not get the rest it needs, it becomes fatigued. So how do we respond when we read these loved words from the 21st Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And by the way, every version seems to have that. He makes me. It's as if the shepherd knows when the sheep needs to rest. I'm going to put my hand gently on you and, and, and make you rest. You've gone far enough. It's as if God knows when we need to rest. It's that moment when God says, you need to stop, you need to rest, you need to refuel. And I'm just like shoving that hand off me and say, no, I don't. I can go one more. I can push. The Common English Bible reads, he lets me rest in grassy meadows. He leads me to restful waters. Now, I suspect there may be some internal responses going on right now from, wow, that sounds so nice. When I think of, every time I read this passage, I think of this stream and banner elk that we took the kids to years ago. We, we were up there, and there was a stream in this park, and the grass was just so green, and the water was just so clear, and it just felt peaceful. That's my Psalm 23. That sounds so nice. Now there may be some of us also thinking, you know, this slacker really needs to get over themselves. You need to get out of the meadows, get out of the grass, get on with life, and accept some responsibility. If I got to do it, you got to do it too. I think those are the two extremes. But what if we could get to a place where our response would be this? This is what God intends for my life, for my soul. God intends me to live in such deep trust that I can rest from all that wearies my soul. God intends to heal my soul when it needs healed, Restore my soul when it needs restored. Make me whole when my soul is conflicted and divided. God intends rest to be a way of life and not a momentary break that seems like a luxury. The late Dallas Willard writes extensively on Psalm 23, and he says this, Psalm 23 is not merely a beautiful poem. What many people miss is that this psalm spells out clearly what life with God is like. It's more than poetry. It's more than something I memorized to get an award. It is really what God intended life to be like when we walk with God in the kingdom, when we walk the spiritual journey. Even Jesus himself said, Come to me, all who are struggling hard and carry heavy loads, and I'll give you rest. Or as another translation put it, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. I love that phrase, I'll recover your life. I think somewhere along the way, and I have done this before, and sometimes I'm always on the verge, sometimes I just completely lose my life. I lose my soul, and I have to recover it. And Jesus invites us into that. God invites us into that. So what does it mean to exactly rest? We see in the very beginning, we go back to the beginning of the Bible, God rested, God created for six days, and then God rested. It seems so counterintuitive. Did God take a nap? Did God kick back and watch some Netflix? Did God take a long walk in his garden that he just created? You see, when we think of rest, I really think we think horizontal, on a couch or on a bed sleeping. Now, don't get me wrong, that's perfectly fine. I'm not laying guilt on you about sleeping and napping. That's probably the most holiest thing you could do on a Sunday afternoon. Agreed? Get an amen? Boy, I'm, come on, folks. 
I need an amen on that one because that's what I'm going to be doing a little bit later. That could be the most holiest thing you could do, but rest is more than just that nap that you're going to take. Let's do a little bit of background on Scripture here. There's an Old Testament scholar, just bear with me for a few minutes, John Walton, that notes that entire creation story in Genesis is set against the backdrop of what is called sacred space and kings and kingdoms. You have to realize that Genesis was written about the time of the Babylonian exile. So when Genesis was written, when the writer sat down to put Genesis together and the seven days of creation, he probably, he was sitting amidst kings and kingdoms and looking around them and saying, this is how kings and kingdoms operate. So at the time that Genesis was written, it was widely known that royal temples or sacred palaces were inaugurated during seven-day festivals. And God created the world in seven days. In Eden, God created a garden. Some kings at that day had gardens outside their residences. And God used the same kind of language that kings used in their kingdoms. Kings would say, let there be taxes, and there were taxes. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Do you see the parallel? The writer of Genesis is using that kind of language that was used in that day to say, but there is a greater king. There is a greater kingdom. And God is the king of this kingdom. And God said, let there be, and there was. And so when a temple or a palace was inaugurated, it symbolized the victory of the king. When his enemies were subdued, the king would leave the battle, enter the temple, and rest on his throne. And a throne is where the king rested. It didn't mean he took a day off. It didn't mean he kicked back in his recliner. It means there was no crisis, there was no battle in his kingdom. That he would be able to rule with wisdom and justice and delight and everyone... Everyone in the kingdom wanted that king to be able to rest on his throne. That's rest. That's why God rested. It didn't mean God took the day off. It meant simply that everything was the way God intended it to be in God's universe. God could reign with ease and delight and shalom and peace because everything was the way God had intended it to be. God could rest. Now, we know that the present world isn't always the way God intended it to be. It can be way off what God intended. What we know is that God is at work in the world recreating it and restoring it. And part of what he's doing to recreate and restore has to do with our own life, has to do with who we are, because how we go into this world is how we make this world. And if we go into this world restored and recreated and people who come out of a place of rest, then we bring to this world a sense of restoration, recreation and a sense of rest. So when we're invited to rest, it's more than just taking a nap, although that helps. It's living a life of deep trust, knowing that God is with us in this world and in our world, and God has not left us alone, and we can trust that. I can trust that I have everything I need, so I don't, want to, I don't have to be compulsively and excessively going after what I want. I can trust to live in contentment. I'm just going right through Psalm 23 here. I can trust that God will lead me in the right path for my way of life. I can trust that in my darkest and fearful valley, God will be with me and us, bringing comfort and strength. I can trust that even when I'm surrounded, and we're surrounded by those who are at odds with us or who have betrayed us, that we can still live in the full acceptance of God's love and grace as God seeks to reconcile us all. And I can trust that God's goodness and mercy will never be far from me. In fact, it follows me every day of my life. I live in God's presence. I like to put it this way. Goodness and mercy have our back. So how can I rest 
What does it look like actively? One person put it this way, when your soul is at rest, it occupies the throne of your life, that is rest. Your will is undivided and it obeys God with joy. Your mind has thoughts of truth and beauty. You desire what is wholesome and good. Your body is filled with appetites that serve the good and with habits that lead you into excellent living. Your soul is at rest. You're not frantic. You're not reactive. You're not living in some kind of hurried, rushed way. You're present to everything that is going on. I thought long and hard about this. What does it look like when my soul is at rest? I came up with my list. I would really invite you to come up with your own list of what this looks like. But here's my list. When my soul is at rest, I rest from trying to always get my own way. I rest from judging and labeling others. When my soul is at rest, I rest from trying to win people's approval and acceptance. Boy, when I'm tired, when I'm soul fatigued and tired, that kicks in. That really kicks in. When my soul is at rest, I rest from competing with others and trying to win debates and arguments or attention or esteem. When I rest, I rest from trying to prove my value or worth. I rest trying to control my world and the world of others. I rest from worrying about things I have no control over. I rest from pushing my own agenda. I rest from always feeling I have to do something that will make a big impact. Boy, that is a huge one. Sometimes life isn't always just about a big splash. Sometimes life is just about going to pick up a gallon of milk and coming home and loving those who are with you and loving those along the way. And sometimes when my soul is at rest, I rest from trying to impress people in order to bolster my image. Now, that's my list. When I read that list, by the way, I thought, whew, no wonder I get tired. No wonder I'm fatigued. I'm doing it to myself. Most of the time we do it to ourselves. No one does it to us or for us. What would be your list? When my soul is at rest, you rest from what? A few more thoughts and then we'll take a few moments. There is such a word called non-anxious presence. If you've ever done counseling, or if you've ever been in what's called family systems, one of the words is how to be a non-anxious presence within families, organizations, um, groups. To be non-anxious means to stay calm. It means not being reactive. It means diffusing anxiety in the situation by being steady and centered. It's a state of inner calm. Emotions are swirling around you. Have you ever been in that situation where you go into a room, a, 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 a team meeting, a department meeting, your family, and emotions are just swirling around, and it just keeps getting higher and higher, and everyone just seems to react. But then there may be someone who just evidences a kind of calm. They're not anxious and they're present. They're connected to everybody. They're not withdrawing. They're not isolating. They're simply present to everybody. And oftentimes when that person can be non-anxious, it invites everyone else to be non-anxious as well. Everyone just takes a deep breath. They know it's going to be okay. I say that to say this. This is where I'm tying this in. We need folks who can bring a non-anxious presence to the challenges of our day. And Psalm 23 invites us into that place. It invites us into a place of rest, into a place of centeredness, 
into a place of being present to God and to ourselves, into a place where we can bring that into everything and everywhere we are. We need a ministry of non-anxious presence in as many places as possible, in boardrooms, in classrooms, in city council meetings, in living rooms, in meeting rooms. We need a ministry of non-anxious presence present in all of these places, and we need him in those places and more. Because when we live non-anxiously, we can think creatively. When we live non-anxiously, we can act resourcefully. When we think non-anxiously, we can show up redemptively in a way that brings life to all around us. I want to read a paraphrase of Psalm 23, and then I'll sit down and we'll take a few moments. This is from an author by the name of Nan Merrill. She paraphrases the Psalms and just with a little bit of a twist. Oh, my beloved, you're my shepherd. I shall not want. You bring me to green pastures for rest and lead me beside still waters, renewing my spirit. You restore my soul. You lead me in the path of goodness to follow love's way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow and of death, I am not afraid, for you're ever with me. Your rod and your staff, they guide me. They give me strength and comfort. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of all of my fears, you bless me with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the heart of the beloved forever. 